Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Deeper Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Paul White. It's the 10th day of May, and we are in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We're focusing in on the end of the story in which Jesus is at the bottom of Mount Transfiguration, having just come down the mountain. He heals the boy who has a deaf and dumb spirit. He raises him up. I I make the the point that possibly we're dealing with a resurrection, although it's not conventionally thought of as such, but certainly allegorically we're dealing with a resurrection, that you die to something to raise up to something else. We sort of rushed 28 and 29 at the end of the podcast yesterday, and I want to do better because I want to talk about this portion of the verse that's left out. Let's reread them. When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? you got to assume they had been doing exactly what they had done before. Remember, the disciples have been sent out where they've cast out devils. They've been told to do so in the name of Jesus. So this isn't, it's not as if this is new territory. Like they're just trying something for the first time, didn't work. They're genuinely confused as to why it's different in this situation. And so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. At the end of the podcast yesterday, I explained to you that that phrase and fasting is not in the earliest Greek translations. Because of that, it's in almost none of the modern translations. It's really only found now in translations that are several hundred years old, um, but not translations that use more ancient methods. Let me explain that real quick. If you, if you were raised in a King James tradition, like myself, that's a, that's a version that was translated in the early 17th century by some of the brightest minds of 16th and 17th century theology and literature. There's even hints that maybe William Shakespeare had a hand in crafting some of the language. That's, that's a hint at best. But the text that they were using, what they were putting together was based upon the best Greek that they had. But in the 400 plus years since the King James, we have um, Greek that stretches back much older. We're now dealing with texts that are far older than the texts that King James was translated off of. And interestingly enough, like the Old Testament, for instance, the King James translated out of the best Hebrew they had, But we have Septuagint, which is Greek from the Hebrew, that stretches to the time before Christ. And so why didn't they use that? That's an interesting question. Anyway, I I saved. We'll put that aside. When you get to more ancient Greek texts, that phrase and fasting is not in there. And as we said yesterday, and I want to clarify, it could be that it was added later by scholars who were trying to shore up some of the other fasting texts. And it could be uh, that it was a mistake that someone thought it should be there based on what they were reading. It's probably best not to add my own conjecture there. So all I can do is guess. So I'll leave that alone for now. One of the things I promised you is we were going to look at fasting from a New Testament perspective, according to Paul. I'm going to push that a day. Let's do that tomorrow. For today, what I want to do is try and give you an alternative to this this idea that, okay, let me say that better. 
Um, I, I don't believe that fasting is a mandate under the New Testament. In fact, you and I together here on the DDP took a look at Jesus' statement in Mark chapter 2, if you'll recall, and I'm trying to check my own notes as to what date those podcasts were posted. Uh, and it looks like it was somewhere in the early part of February. We, we did podcasts on Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, where Jesus is confronted by the, the uh, leaders, the Pharisees, and say, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus said, as long as the bridegroom's with them, they don't need to. The time will come when the bridegroom's gone, they will fast. And then you'll notice that in the resurrection stories, when Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, repeatedly they eat. They're always eating. It's either they eat on the road to Emmaus. They eat when he comes to meet them in the room. They eat at the beach in John 21. And the reason he keeps eating with them is to reiterate his reality and and to break their fast. So it's not as if Jesus gives the mandate to fast. However, the early church did use fasting, and I want to be fair, and I'm not talking, I want to go like third century now, okay? So I'm not talking book of Acts. There was fastings there. We'll look at them tomorrow. They were never positive, but they were, but they were there, and, and there was even a little bit of it as an attempt to get a hold of God. But I want to look at like third century. Okay, for instance, Tertullian was a North African theologian, um, wrote the first great treatise on a single virtue in Christian history. It was called On Patience, and it was in the early third century. In fact, he first began to reveal On Patience in the year 204 AD. Okay, so early, early third centuries. And it really established a sort of a theological basis for the role uh, that patience would play in the world and the life of the Christian. And Tertullian was probably the most influential theologian of his day in that the Christians that we have writings from, the lay people from the third century, they quote Tertullian. They don't quote the Bible. They don't have the Bible like we do, but they have Tertullian. And Tertullian taught people to fast. And his argument, now hear this, was that he was trying to get them ready for the imprisonment that they were going to face at the hands of their Roman persecutors who would put them in prison and starve them. So he would prepare the church by encouraging them to fast so that when they were deprived of food forcibly, it wouldn't be as bad for them. He went even further. Let me read a direct quote from Tertullian. I'm not so sure that the wrist, which is always surrounded by a bracelet, will be able to bear the burdens of chains with resignation. I have some doubts that the leg, which now rejoices to wear an anklet, will be able to wear the tight squeeze of an ankle chain. And I sometimes fear that the neck, which is more laden with strings of pearls and emeralds, will give no room to the executioner's sword. Can you see what he's doing there? Like you're wearing bracelets. I'm not so sure with all these bracelets that you would actually take a chain, a a handcuff. You're wearing these anklets. I'm not so sure you'd be able to get that ankle chain squeezed around that. Or you're so in love with your necklaces and your pearls, I'm not sure you'd have room to let your head be chopped off. In Tertullian's world, there was a sort of aesthetic practice that prepared you for persecution. So I want to be fair. The early church, and I'm talking first few centuries, they did have fasting in their theology, but it was not to get God's attention. It was to prepare for persecution. That 
segues pretty good into Paul's and the book of Acts fasting, which we'll deal with tomorrow. We'll see you then. God bless.